Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having deep and meaningful conversations with the brightest and best minds I can find to help inspire all of us to make amazing products, amazing product teams, and amazing product companies. If you like the sound of that, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the newsletter, check out some of my other episodes with thought leaders and practitioners, and subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast app so you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we ponder the classic saying, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, and wonder what we could achieve if we could move beyond that fear when thinking about productization and digital transformation, and stop worrying about what might go wrong and concentrate on what might go right instead. We talk about where in the organisation that fear sits, how we might overcome it, and why we need to forget all about being product-led, and just concentrate on being product-friendly. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my returning guest tonight is Aisha Armstrong. Eagle-eared listeners may recognise that name from a few months back when I spoke to Aisha all about her book Productize and the seven deadly mistakes of productization. some of the pitfalls that service mindset companies fall into when trying to make the shift to a scalable product organisation. Aisha's back already with a new book all about transforming organisations to have a product-friendly culture. The book's called Fearless, which is very apt and just in time for Halloween, although I can assure you this green tinge to my skin is just a trick of the light and there are no gummy fangs in sight. Hi, Aisha. How are you tonight? I'm wonderful, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm feeling much better. Thank you. But before we start, we do have to check how fearless you are. So I do have to ask, Aisha, do you like scary movies? I hate scary movies. <laughs> okay, so how are we going to conquer that fear tonight? Like we need, to, we need to combat the fear within you. So I tried exposure therapy, like trying to watch a few scary movies, but I honestly think there's something wrong with the wiring in my brain. I can't separate what I see from the screen from reality. Like if I see it on the screen, I think it's happening and it's just too upsetting for me. Well, okay. No, uh, no sore marathons for us, but no. <laughs> I guess the first real question though, that wasn't a real question, obviously. The first real question, as mentioned, we've spoken before about your last book and about your work with Vectris, helping service companies productize. And it's been a few months now, so I'm sure you've been up to lots of cool stuff. So aside from the book, which we'll talk about in a minute, how have you been filling your time in the meantime? Oh, I went to South America this summer, and uh -huh. I went to the Galapagos, uh, which was amazing. Uh, and then I went to Peru and hiked part of the Inca Trail with my brother and sister-in-law and a couple of friends to Machu Picchu. And that was just glorious. So it doesn't sound like you've been doing a lot of transforming companies in all of that, or did you kind of <laughs> digital nomad that and just get it all done from your no, Wi-Fi dongle? That was my vacation post book launch. So that uh -huh. was all R&R, &R. No, no work on the side during that. Did you find any kind of almost external inspiration from some of these places that you could actually take back to your productization efforts for companies, like any kind of tangential thinking that you could have, like something you sat there looking at a rock in Machu Picchu and you're like, I've now got a new idea about how to solve a problem. Yeah, I think what happened was actually there was this moment in the Galapagos where, so I write about in Fearless at the beginning about when I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with my son. And all the fears that came as part of both the training process and the, the hiking, the trekking process. 
and how I was able to rely on things that I write about in the book to help me overcome those fears. And the same thing came up again in the Galapagos. So there's a lot of opportunities to snorkel with animals, sharks, sea lions, penguins, just amazing animals to get to interact with. And I felt very, very fearful about getting in waters where there were sharks and sea lions, having not done it before. But I went back to uh, things that I write about in the book. Like I did a short mindfulness meditation to try to get back into my body and not in my head. I tried to focus on how grateful I was for the opportunity to be in this beautiful place with my family and see these animals. And as a result, I was able to get through it and really enjoy the experience as opposed to being anxious the whole time. Well, that does sound super relevant to a lot of the things that you talk about in the book about kind of making peace with the stuff that's coming up. So let's talk a little bit about the book and some of the themes from within it. So originally, you wrote Productize. We spoke about it before, the ultimate guide to turning professional services into scalable products. And then now you've got the new book or relatively new book, Fearless, which kind of follows on. And you talk a little bit about fear in that first book. And I think we talked a little bit about it in the last interview that you and I did. But you've got the new book, which is all about the fear or fearlessness and how to transform a service culture and successfully productize. So there's obviously a common thread through that. And you could therefore consider that maybe there's going to be some common ground covered in the two. And I know that there's some things about, say, the productized pathway in book two, for example. But do you consider book two really like a standalone thing that teams or leaders can pick up on their own? Or do they kind of need to have read book one to get the most out of both of them? No, no, you could certainly pick up Fearless on its own. I think we cover enough around why is productization an important strategy for organizations, for services organizations to pursue. And I would say definitely right now with everything that's going on in generative AI, it's like even more, more important than ever. So we cover that. We, we cover kind of what are the, what is good productization craft look like or good product management craft. But where the book is different is it, it really focuses on the behavior change that the organization needs to encourage across all functions of the organization for a productization strategy to be successful. So what we found is we'd have organizations where perhaps you know this is a key strategic pillar for the CEO. They've made the right amount of investment to bring in product professionals. Perhaps they've even made the right amount of investment to stand up a dedicated sales channel and all the marketing resources that are needed. But they're still not getting the success that they want. And it's because the rest of the organization isn't really bought into the strategy or doesn't understand how their behavior needs to shift in order for the strategy to be successful. And that's where we really focus this fearless book on. So that all makes a lot of sense. I guess an interesting question there is, I mean, you talked before when we spoke before about how writing the first book was a really tricky, you know, it was hard. I think you you pretty much called it out. And that would make me somewhat afraid of maybe writing a second one because the first one was so hard. Like it's like, it it wasn't, it wasn't even that long between the two, I guess, that you could sit there and say that you'd kind of forgotten how hard the first one was. So was it always that there was a book two on the agenda and you just had to get it out? And it was something that you always had planned? Or was it more that you'd gone out after the first book, kind of seen a few more things that you just described out in the wild and decided 
hey, I, I need somewhere to put these new ideas that maybe I didn't have a chance to cover in the first one and have kind of uncovered since? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think what happened is towards the end of the research for the first book, I realized that devoting one chapter to culture and behavior change probably was not going to be enough. <laughs> and if I were to write a second book, that's where I should focus. So it wasn't that I had my mind made up, but I heard enough and seen enough in the research to know that it was probably getting short shrift by just giving it, like I said, one chapter in, in productize. So that would then assume, if we're talking about cultural change, that the audience for these books could be somewhat different. Like, So the first book is very practical, talking about all the things that you need to practically, technically do to start to build out some of the things that you need to do to move away from services and move into more of a productized offering and the different types of productized offerings that there can be. So are you then pitching this book very much, at, I don't know, maybe business leaders or HR leaders within organizations that need to kind of propagate this stuff? Or is it also a bottoms up book as well? No, this is much more for the leadership team, or for the head of product who's really struggling with the fact that <laughs> never happens. the organization's not changing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, here, just like slip this over to your CEO or your head of HR or whomever, get them to read it and they'll have a lot more empathy for how hard your job is. Although that's an interesting question, because I often have this idea that slipping books to CEOs rarely works because they look at it and they go, well, thanks very much. And they kind of use it, not just your book, but any book to kind of just hold up their monitor or something like that. Like I've seen many a discarded copy of Inspired kicking around a SaaS office somewhere that was presumably gifted to someone back in the day. Uh, do you think that it's particularly easy to get, for example, CEOs of such organizations, maybe maybe slightly less SaaS mindset, less product mindset CEOs that are very focused on the past, maybe looking to go into the future, but that just waving a book at them or, or trying to get them to look at bits of a book is like the way to do it? Or, or have you seen that work particularly well? Yeah. So that's a great question. Most of my conversations these days are actually with CEOs who either prior to Jan 1 were already thinking that productization was a strategy they needed to pursue or woke up on Jan 1 of this year and realized that generative AI could kill their business. <laughs> and as a result, they've now decided that they need to figure out how to productize their delivery of services. And that could be as simple as just using new tools that are out there to standardize and scale. It could be building new products and selling those to existing customers or spinning them off as entirely new businesses. But it is the CEOs who have decided that this is not something that they need to worry about are, are not ones that I want to have a conversation with. <laughs> so... Oh, what a conversation it would be. But that's really interesting about the generative AI stuff, because I think that in many ways, like we were all expecting all of the technical stuff to be kind of automated away and, and a lot of manual work to be kind of removed and, and taken away. And of course, we are talking about that. But when people talked about manual work, they were thinking about, you know, people moving winches in factories and stuff like that. But it seems to be this paradigm shift now where all of the people like copywriters and designers and voice artists and all of these people that had the until relatively recently considered kind of really top tier skills that were so hard to replace seem to be the most under threat from this generative AI stuff. So have you seen a lot of that oh. panic from those types of CEOs? 
Yeah. And it's not just the ones you talked about. It's, it's legal work, right? Yep. Attorneys. It's work that happens in a audit. So accountants. It's market research, even business case building. So there is not a services sector that I have yet to talk to that is not at risk of being disrupted by generative AI or could not benefit from a deep exploration and how they could better use generative AI to scale their existing services. I last week had a great conversation with the CEO who woke up on Jan 1 and said, oh my gosh, we could be out of business a year from now. Their business is creating explainer videos and demo videos. So he got a SWAT team together of software developers who have generative AI skills. And within six months, they have built a tool that has automated 70% of the work that they do. 70% (laughs) in six months. Now, there's a, another 30% of like message simplification and you know, how are we going to best visualize this that they've not yet figured out how to train the AI to do, and maybe they will never be able to do that. Who knows? But I, I tell you, Jason, like, if organizations are not thinking seriously about how to better standardize and scale what they're doing using all of these new tools that are out there, they will be left in the dust. I agree. But I also have seen certain, if we talk about fear again, I've seen a certain fear out there, not of the AI itself, which obviously many people are afraid of in different ways. And you see all these different doom and gloom commentators out there. But there's also a different type of fear that I've seen out there. And I wonder if you see this yourself as well, and if there's any kind of antidote to it of like, almost a fear of using the AI, because for example, they don't want all their data going somewhere that they don't know, or they can't explain it, or there's this almost like pushback against the inevitable wave that's coming. Like, have you managed to kind of counteract that in any of the conversations you've had? Or have you managed to basically find most of the people that you talk to are kind of keen to get involved? Yeah. So again, it's it's a matter of educating people, right? You don't want to take your trade secrets and put them into chat GPT, <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't even think chat GPT want to do that. Right. But there are tools out there that you can put your trade secrets into, and the data is not going to be shared with other AI tools. You can easily also now build your own and create your own walled garden. And and so it's just a matter of educating yourself about what the risks really are, what tools are out there. And again, this this space is evolving so quickly, determining who on your team is going to be at least happy of their job, if not all of their job, playing in this space and actively experimenting to see what this means for your business. No, absolutely. Well, let's go deep into productization and just maybe kind of do a bit of a recap. I mean, we've just talked about some of the reasons why people might want to accelerate their thinking now because of the inevitable wave of generative AI that's continuing to build and build. But just to set the scene for people who haven't tuned in before, maybe haven't read the book yet and kind of maybe they're working service firms at the moment or servicey type firms at the moment. Like, How are you defining specifically productization in your terms? And what are some of the key reasons, aside from generative AI, that business leaders should be embracing it? Yeah. So great question. Thank you. Productization is any effort to document your intellectual property and then use it to standardize and scale how you deliver your services. 
So again, it could be as simple as automating things on the back end. Your clients may still think, you know, everything is being bespoke, custom delivered. You still may be charging for time, but there's some degree of standardization so you can better scale and usually use of technology. So that, that would kind of be what we call productizing services all the way to creating your own product, like a software as a service product or a data as a service product that is either sold to different market segments or sold to existing customers as a, you know, perhaps as a step-on product or a maintenance product. It could be spun off as a new business. You know, those are more moonshot ideas. Most of the the clients that we work with are still trying to figure out how to standardize and scale delivery of existing services and perhaps maybe start to offer some maintenance or step-on products. So I can't imagine a single business leader out there that would sit there and think they don't like the sound of at least some of what you've just said, like the scalability. I know you talk in the book about the scalability, the margins going up, the Visibility of revenue, the valuation of the company going up, all of the things that people talk about when they talk about scalable SaaS companies, as an example. So, is it the business leaders that are afraid of, you know, talking about fearlessness again? Is it the business leaders that are out there being afraid of making that change? Or is it really the employees within the organizations that the business leaders have to make less afraid? Yeah, it's usually both. So, the fear at the leadership team level comes with the investment that's required in order to do this successfully. So usually companies will start with getting an existing client or two to fund most of the product development. But at some point, you have to pull the trigger and write larger checks to scale the product, to scale the technology. If you're going to sell it, you've got to invest in a sales channel, marketing, and so on. So it's usually the size of the investment. And you know these are firms and organizations that are bootstrapped, right? They're not backed by venture capital. So it's their money. You're talking about reducing the size of the distribution checks to the partners so that they can fund on this bet <laughs> that they're going to be able to grow margins and compete more effectively and so on. So that's that's usually the fear at the leadership team level. The fear at the employee level is, you know, am I going to lose my job? Will I still have value in an organization where the value is not what's in my head, but it's the intellectual property that we've documented and productized? It's the you know fear of letting the product team talk to my clients that I've spent years building relationships with, or fear of putting an imperfect MVP in front of a client who usually has received you know near perfect deliverables from my consulting team and things like that. So it's it's certainly both, but they're different types of fears depending on the level. But that's interesting that that fear at the leadership level because obviously I can completely understand the desire to not want to spend loads of money on something that might not work. But I also have this kind of thought in my head, like you just talked about bootstrap firms, for example, and this idea that, of course, they've kind of grown through deals, they've grown probably quite organically. And that's something that you see even in non-service companies to some extent, where if they didn't take an initial funding, if they're not really like venture capital playground type firms, maybe they've been taking money from, say, private equity, growth equity firms and stuff like that. And there's almost this natural baked in, I mean, let's call it fear or like a kind of a conservatism within the funding model that they've operated within in the first place. Then unlike with the VCs where it's like, oh yeah, we don't care if we miss 100 as long as 101st hits the moon. Like 
that doesn't exist in some of these other funding models. So do you feel that the funding model is a big intrinsic part of where that fear can come from? Yeah, certainly. It would be easier if you were playing with other people's money as opposed to your own. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things we try to teach and productize is that you know, that lean product development model of test and learn, test and learn, and how to make small bets along the way so that you're not just going out and writing a seven-figure check to a dev shop without really testing first, you know, is there market need? Is there willingness to pay? What features are truly required for this to be successful? But at some point, a leap of faith has to happen. It can be a prudent leap of faith and you can have data that gives you somewhere between 40 to 60% confidence but you're not waiting for 100% confidence to make those bets. No absolutely but it does also make me question in some cases like I'm sure that there are some leaders that are still a bit tentative but they kind of still believe this is the right thing to do but also in other cases there might be pressure from maybe the board or from investors or from just how they think the industry is going they don't really want to do it as such, like they kind of they were kind of happy as they were, but they've kind of been pushed into that and really sort of really heavily encouraged to go in that direction, which to me sounds like that would be even more scary for, for example, a founder because it's not even like they wanted to do it in the first place or that they naturally wanted to do it. So how much of this then is about pushing against their kind of natural biases and, and where they thought they were and, and and also to some extent the kind of almost want to buck the system and say, well, why are you telling me what to do? And, and it kind of it almost introduces more resistance than maybe even just the fear on its own. Do, do you think that happens? Oh, totally. And one of the things we talk a lot about in Fearless is the importance of getting alignment, alignment with your investors. So if you're a partnership, that means alignment with the partners or private equity owned with your private equity owners, or if it's you know just you and a couple of other co-founders, like you have to have alignment with the investors around why are we doing this? What do we hope to gain? Is it we're feeling competitive threats already? Is it we're, you know, we just want to be prudent and start experimenting in case competition comes along? Do we want to exit in a few years and we want to take the risk to get a significant valuation bump if we do this? Is it we can't hire enough accountants to serve the clients <laughs> we have? And so we have to do this. I mean, there are a number of reasons, but without a clear why and an expectation of what outcomes you hope to see, it doesn't make sense to, to go further down the path. No, absolutely. And I think alignment is one of those things that everyone always comes up with. It's this kind of constant bugbear across all organizations, right? Just this idea that everyone's going after different stuff. But obviously, yeah, getting that alignment. And you talk a lot in the book about vision as well and having kind of a coherent vision that kind of gives the reason why they want to do this stuff in the first place, which I guess kind of ties into that same point, like having something to get the entire company behind so that they're not just thinking that this is some random crapshoot or just some just brain fart, but it's actually something that's got a proper coherent idea behind it. And I think another thing that you said in the book, which I found really interesting and maybe flies against what you might hear from some product commentators, is this idea that you really need to tie that vision back to almost like the legacy business case or the legacy business model and kind of start bringing in some of the financial and the business KPIs that you wouldn't traditionally include in a product sort of set of KPIs, but it really helps to kind of bring the two worlds together. Yeah. And that's where I think 
how B2B services companies do product is different from how tech native product native companies do product. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So tech native product native, you read everything that's out there about product vision. And it's always about you want it to be super aspirational, focus on how are you changing the world, improving customers' lives, improving employee lives, blah, blah, blah. Like that's all important and should be part of your vision because it certainly helps with winning hearts and minds. But because this is not just a kind of product strategy, this is affecting the whole organization's strategy. I mean, this is a business model transformation. This is a digital transformation. This is teaching an organization what it means to be truly innovative. You have to talk about what are the outcomes that we're expecting. You know, we're, we're expecting that we will be more attractive to outside investors. We are expecting that we will not be so reliant on the scarce supply of talent. And it's, it's important to do that so that people know not just like, why is this important, but where are we going? Like, what are the measures that we're managing to? Because that'll affect your product portfolio strategy, your product roadmaps. I think another interesting thing you do call out in the book is the importance that there's kind of alignment on what you were talking about there around like where they're going and, and, and why they're going, but like making sure that the incentives are aligned as well, because it feels like quite often that, that, and I've seen this as well in service companies as well, very specific, like big agencies, where you kind of have all these different teams that are basically motivated and explicitly motivated and told to go and like, for example, manage a P&L, which directly contradicts the global strategy, for example, that they're going after or the productization strategy that they're going after. And they kind of can't square the circle because they're being told that they have to hit these targets, but also being told to do lots of things that make it really hard for them to hit those targets. Right. Is that something that you see a lot out in the wild? Oh, all the time. Because that would make me afraid if I was like the owner of that P&L, for example. Yes. But fortunately, then it's easy to fix once you find it. So what happens is, okay, we don't know why our consultants or our partners or whatever, they, they aren't selling our products. And I was like, okay, what are their performance measures? Oh, utilization rates, <laughs> <laughs> right? If you've productized, <laughs> your utilization rates should go down if your staff stays the same, right? Because you've standardized more of what you're delivering. So utilization rate becomes like a silly measure for a productized organization. Or you know, they're, they're incented on sales this year. Well, usually products have a lower price point than bespoke services this year, but they may have a higher customer lifetime value. They certainly should have higher gross margins. So it's like, okay, well, maybe we start incenting people on gross margins or we look at, you know, customer lifetime value or we throw utilization rates out the window, depending on the business line. But yeah, I see that all the time, Jason. Sad, sad stories. But one of the things, and you kind of touched on it just now when you write about it in the book as well, this idea that there's lots of great books out there that we should absolutely read, but they're all kind of written for a world that maybe feels disconnected from the world that some of the people that work in these types of companies actually inhabit on a day-to-day basis. And there's all this talk about product-led this and product-focused that and product-driven, whatever. But your take on this is all about really creating a product-friendly culture, which is something that I really like because I know how weird it can be for non-product people to get hit over the head, like we were saying earlier about being gifted the book and told to read it, and they don't know what half the words mean because it's just they've never seen this terminology before, right? 
So when you talk about a product-friendly culture within a transforming organization, what are some of the hallmarks that you like to look for or push for? Yeah. And how is that specifically different from being quote-unquote product-led? So honestly, the first thing I look for are what we call the four horsemen hey. of a product-friendly culture. Now that does sound scary. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I had the seven deadly sins in the first book, and now we've got the four horsemen. In yeah. the For someone book. who doesn't like scary movies, you're definitely uh, you're definitely kind of laying it on thick with the uh, with the scary references. Right. I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> but what we found in our research is that the hallmarks that make a services organization great can kill a product friendly culture. So then we decided, okay, let's call these the four horsemen of a product-friendly culture. And again, they're great if you're a pure B2B services that offers you know, bespoke services. So the first one is what we call knowing. And that's when you're an expert, right? Like I hire my attorney not to learn about the law as I'm asking them questions. But, <laughs> my but, cousin Vinny style. Right. But to know the law, like they are the expert. There's no learning. They know it. That's why we hire them. The second one is perfection, right? If I'm going to pay 600 US dollars an hour for my attorney's time, like that document better be perfect. <laughs> Correct? Yes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the third is kind of this, um, what we call like a scarcity mindset, which is you have clients pay for things, right? You don't invest in advance of need. You have the client pay for it. And then... The fourth one is all about individual heroics. So my attorney goes out and grows their book of business through their Rolodex, through referrals. It's all about them, their expertise, the individual. Now, think about what you need to create products, right? You need a learning culture where you test and learn and you're open to changing your mind based on what the market tells you, what users tell you. A knowing culture where you value that expertise and knowing the answer ahead of time is in direct contrast with a learning culture. So that's where you start to see a lot of conflict. That perfectionism we talked about, right? If you're going to ship an MVP, it's, it's not perfect, right? <laughs> you, you're putting things out there before they're fully ready so that you can get real market feedback and you co-design and you develop and, and, and you really collaborate with your customers along the way, but you're not shipping them a perfect product at the beginning. You're, you're assuming that, that you're going to be able to get the resources to invest in advance of need and that customers will continue to buy from you as you create more products. And that kind of goes against the customers have to pay for things first, Hallmark. And then the last one around individual heroics. Most products are not about the person. They're about the intellectual property. And teams have to collaborate with each other within the organization as well as with their customers in order to create great products. So... That's why I think this is so different for B2B services companies because they have, again, these hallmarks that have made them a great services business. But when you try to transport them to a product business, they're no longer hallmarks of a great services business, but they're the four horsemen of, of a product-friendly culture. So I'm going to have to ask then in true horror movie style, like how are we going to defeat those horsemen? Because... <laughs> The, a lot of what you've just said, and I completely agree, by the way, these are all kind of hallmarks and, and I've seen them before. And, and it's obviously difficult because 
it kind of feels like to some extent it's almost baked into not even the culture of the company, but just the mindsets of the individuals as well. Because of course, what's got them here is is all of those things. And we all know the next part of that, it's not necessarily going to get them there. But at the same time, from the kind of exec down, you often have this kind of culture of not really wanting to admit any fallibility at all. You've got like a room full of people all struggling over the same acronym that no one knows what it means because no one's prepared to kind of put their hand up and say, well, hang on a minute, what does that mean? So everyone's kind of posturing and just trying to make themselves look clever and trying to make sure that they're not being seen as weak in any circumstances. So like how much those power dynamics kind of introduce resistance to even trying to fix those things? Um, a little bit. So what, what our research found is that there are a couple of, of levers that organizations have pulled successfully to shift their culture to be more product friendly. And it starts with kind of naming all of this and outlining, here are the behaviors that we're going to need if we're going to be more product friendly, and the leadership team embodying those behaviors and behaving in a way that aligns with what they've communicated is important. So that's the first thing. Then the vision that we talked about, you know, why are we productizing? Why is this important? What do we hope to achieve through it? Talent is another one. And that typically involves bringing in new people into the organization. Some of it can be upskilling existing people. But as you know, through your work, you typically need to bring in some new talent who are already kind of steeped in product mindset in order to start to shift uh, behavior. There are also things that need to happen with org structure to make sure that people have the right decision-making authority, governance, so that there's a clear process for making decisions about product investments. And then those people-related practices like compensation structure and performance measures that we talked about, those need to be changed as well to make sure that they're not inadvertently discouraging the product-friendly behaviors that we said we wanted. Now, you just talked about talent getting new blood in and getting, for example, a head of product for the firm to come in and be the kind of exemplar, I guess, for some of the behaviors. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of the challenges that that person might face in a minute, because of course, those challenges are real. But one thing that you said in the book, which I very strongly agree with, is that the head of or whatever they're called of product for B2B services or transforming firm needs to have substantially better stakeholder management skills than you might expect from a standard, quote unquote, standard head of product, maybe a tech first B2C firm or just some fairly by the book product company. So what additional skills do you think that a head of product needs to have? I mean, stakeholder management, of course, but like, how does that manifest itself? And, and how do they succeed then as that exemplar in a company that they could potentially get tissue rejection from? Yeah, because no one else thinks like them. Yeah, that's such a good question. And unfortunately, this is one where we have like too much firsthand experience <laughs> seeing very talented product leaders fail. Yes. Because they thought their job was to be the technologist. Oh, I'm being hired as the person who knows about technology. It's like, that's secondary. What, what you're being hired to do is to be the evangelist for the productization strategy. So that means you need to be really good at building relationships and understanding what motivates the people around you that you're going to need for subject matter expertise and marketing and access to their clients and funding, like all of those things. 
you need to be a good storyteller, right? So that you can capture the hearts and minds of all the people that you're trying to influence. You need to have a really good understanding of business outcomes and be able to quickly identify the quick wins that will help release more investment for what you're trying to do. So not just, you know, focusing all of your effort on those long payback period ideas. And that's really if you're if you are the first product leader that an organization has ever had, like God bless you. <laughs> and Run away. right. No, no, certainly not. But second, <laughs> understand that your technology chops are secondary. Yeah. And what what you exactly what you said, it's all about the stakeholder management, the communication, the relationship building that's that's critical for your role. Yeah, I think what you just said about the first product manager or product leader, I mean, I guess in many cases, the product manager is the product leader if they get that type of person in, just someone that's got some kind of history in, in a product firm. There is that risk of tissue rejection, but there's also this article that I read and I've chatted to a couple of people about it, this idea of like being the first, first product manager is almost like a hiding to nothing because the no one in the company knows what good looks like. They don't really know what they want out of that person. And that person's got to do a lot of wet work. You know, we talked about that before the call, like a lot of wet work to just get stuff to a state where maybe then the next person can come in and be more successful with the foundations that they've made. Now, do you think that's a bit of a negative kind of almost like defeatist take? Or do you think there's something to getting someone in? Yeah, maybe someone like me or you, but like, you know, just someone in to kind of do some of the preparatory work so that the rest of the company rather than being afraid of or tissue rejecting the person that comes in, has kind of already been exposed to someone that they've kind of got more of an intrinsic trust in and can kind of set them up for success. No, I love that strategy. And we recommend it a lot to organizations who are on the cusp of hiring their first person is bring in somebody on an interim fractional basis first, probably also because you haven't determined product market fit to justify the budget for the kind of person you, you might need on a long-term <laughs> basis before committing to the FTE. Let's you know bring in somebody on an interim fractional basis to help prove that out and to start to prep the organization for the changes. And they can also do the assessment, right? So the assessment of what the organization really needs before they go out and hire that person. Like, do they need, you know, is it more important to have industry expertise in this area or given the technology they're working on, does that not matter? Like that's something that's going to be hard for a CEO or leadership team with limited product expertise to know. And that's where a fractional or interim can be very, very valuable. Yeah, I do tend to agree that sometimes industry or very service mindset leaders can massively overweight the importance of industry expertise because of course that's their world and that's the world of all of the people that they're dealing with. Now, I'm a big fan of industry expertise for sure, but like not at the expense of product expertise. I think just getting a, an industry expert in, probably you're leaving something on the table, right? But I do have to ask though, isn't some level of fear helpful? Like we've developed fear for a good reason. <laughs> Cave people back in the day were running away from saber-toothed tigers or whatever they were running away from. It meant we developed certain instincts that kept us alive and enabled us to evolve and kind of do all the cool things that we're doing these days. So if it doesn't get too paralyzing, it almost feels like fear could be considered good old-fashioned due diligence. So like, is there a danger of being too fearless in a transformation? I disagree. Oh. I, I think, you know, that limbic brain is not going away, right? So <laughs> you can't completely get rid of your, your fear. 
But I think anyone who says, oh, this is healthy fear and, you know, our minds were wired for fear, like none of us are saving lives. None of us are running for our lives and the work that we're doing. Our fears are completely exaggerated. And what I'd much rather have leaders do is go to the rather than what all that could go wrong, like, what if we succeed, right? Our brain's already going to go through what could go wrong. <laughs> the people below us are always going, already going to be thinking what could go wrong. Our role as leaders is to paint that vision of like, what happens if we succeed? I mean, we, we have technology at our fingertips right now that can truly transform the way that 80 to 90% of us work. And like, wouldn't that be amazing if we could all be doing work that is in service to like our greatest calling and aligned with like our, you know, our zone of genius? And wouldn't it be great if rather than just affecting 100 clients, we could affect 100,000 clients? I mean, that, that's the role of the leader. It's not to talk about the fear. It's to talk about the possibility. It's interesting. I've seen leaders in the past that have been like, because I'm a big fan of open leadership, transparency and all of that stuff. But there's also sometimes it goes too far the other direction where like you have a leader that's maybe going for a transformation. They're feeling the strain or the fear themselves, but they're too open and they kind of pass that fear straight through to their teams as well, which means that then no one's quite 100% sure like if everything's going to be okay. Right. So do you feel it's important to kind of put a brave face on this stuff, even if we are naturally afraid, that it's important to maintain some level of detachment so that you can kind of have this calm James Bond style facade at the very least. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I hope it's not a facade. And in fact, I, I, there's, a, <laughs> there's a chapter in the book where I talk about individual practices that you can do as a leader, everything from you know mindfulness practices, gratitude practices, things like that, that can really ground you and not have to like put on a brave face, but to truly have in your heart, like a brave, a brave heart. And again, disclaimer, I'm a yoga teacher when I'm not writing books or managing <laughs> my company. So like I, I have my own practice of doing yoga, which I call meditation and movement. I strongly believe in the mind-body connection. This is something that I think is, is transformational for me as a leader. But there's also science to back this up. And if it's not just enough to say, oh, we shouldn't be afraid, but then you are afraid, we shouldn't be afraid. And do you have your own practices to help you quell your fear and stay in a place of, of strength and belief and possibility? Absolutely. Well, again, lots of hearts and minds and kind of inward looking stuff there to make sure that you're your best self as well. But speaking of hearts, you said in the book that the opposite of fear is love. Yes. And that you might have called the book Love Transforming a Services Culture to Successfully Productize, but you were worried that you might not be taken seriously. So what do you think that says about the state of the world today? Yeah, I, well, I was afraid, right? I was afraid, Jason. You know, I think there's certainly for me some imposter syndrome, like, you know, who am I to be doing this? And so I need to use a word that's not love. So I'm going to choose fearless instead. And a month after my book came out, another CEO who's 
leads a large services company based here in Cincinnati, released a book that I recommend called Impact with Love. And it was all about how he had built his organization called Tier One Consulting with this ethos of love and how he treated his clients, how he treated his employees. They are a certified B Corp, which is in the US means you're looking at needs other than just the investors. And I was like, darn it. (laughs) He wasn't afraid. Like he put that word love in the title. So I had breakfast with him a few weeks ago. And I I was saying like, how did you overcome the fear to do it? Because I was too afraid. And he's like, oh, I was afraid too. (laughs) So he admitted, I was afraid too. But he had a good group of advisors who just kept coming back and said, you know, the word that keeps coming up in the book text is love. Why didn't you put love in the title? So he did. So I think in answer to your question, I think the culture is shifting. Certainly, more and more research is being done about the value of fearlessness, the value of love, the value of these mindfulness techniques that we talk about in creating better business outcomes. More leaders are therefore talking about it. And I think that that, you know, hopefully in my lifetime, we'll see a lot more of this. Oh, fingers crossed. I'm definitely feeling a little bit fuzzier already. So hopefully uh, (laughs) even my cold heart is going to start to uh, move in that direction and feel a little bit less afraid and embrace the love that we all need to have for our products and our organizations. Well, I think there's plenty more we could talk about, but I do have to ask for now at least, where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about productization, grab hold of some of the resources you've got on your website or talk to you about their deepest fears? Uh, Vectorist.com is the website where you can get lots of information about the books, good case studies, blog posts, things like that. I'm on LinkedIn if anyone wants to personally connect. I do get some help managing my LinkedIn message box. So (laughs) hopefully you'll get a timely reply from me if you message me on LinkedIn. There you go. And you can send as many love hearts as we want as well. Yes. I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and uh, hopefully you'll get a few people heading not too timidly and not too scaredly into your direction. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really happy we could do this and face our fears together. We'll of course stay in touch, but as for now, thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Jason. It was great to be here again. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.